Well, move over, Chief Health Officers and Surgeon Generals. There is a new cop on the beat, the Planetary Health Authority. No, this is not a new Star Trek character. This is a real position, a Planetary Health Authority. Now, before you think, well, that's just a fancy name for a geologist or maybe a climate change czar, isn't it amazing how modern democratic institutions are not shy about using terms like czar to label their officials? It's very strange, isn't it? No, the Planetary Health Authority is a medical doctor. This has taken the Gaia hypothesis to new heights. What does one study exactly in planetary medical school? Are there classes on iron core physiology? How to take lava samples to be sent to solar system pathology? What exactly should one prescribe for an earthquake? And if it's above magnitude 6, are there specialists that planets suffering from ill health can be referred to? As I sat down today to continue reading, research and writing on the next TopCast episode about the physics of heat and work, I saw a hashtag trending on Twitter. It was hashtag endangered gen, and I thought for a moment that while there can be more put into publicising the sacrifices of veterans from World War II, for example, on social media, that describing them as an endangered generation was possibly lacking a little in sensitivity. But no, I was wrong. The hashtag was not for recognising the declining population of heroic survivors of those freedom fighters who stood against authoritarianism, but rather about the youngest people of all. The world has never been more wealthy, more healthy and more safe for a youngster, and globally, life expectancy continues to rise, and yet the youngsters are now being told they are endangered. Who would promote such a message? Well, the first three tweets I could find about this hashtag all came from the same source. Melbourne, Australia's Monash University. In some polls, Monash is ranked at the very top of Australian universities. So quite the backing of a certain idea like this. But the official account of Monash University, the official Twitter account, was linking to a piece in the newspaper, which is The Guardian. So, well, here we have a respected institution of tertiary learning linking to a respected, or at least a well-known, newspaper article. Now, the tweet is in my Substack article itself, but for listeners, let me just read out the tweet for you from Monash University, and it says, Climate change is just one of the big challenges future generations will grapple with. So how can we hashtag change it? Experts weigh in on what the future will really be like for the generations to come. Hashtag endangered gen. And then we have a link to an article in The Guardian. And from what we can see of the preview of the article, it says... Wake up call. Are we really endangering the next generation? The world has changed, but is it irrevocable? Experts weigh in on what the future will really be like for the generations to come. Well then, if, as the tweet is saying, experts weigh in on this hashtag endangered gen and The Guardian has something to say about it, let's take a look. Again, the article itself that I'm talking about is linked to it in my Substack article. But just in case anything should happen to that article, I've also put screenshots of it on the Substack article as well. And I'm going to read just parts of the article. And at the very beginning, we can see in this article, it's titled, Wake Up Call, Are We Really Endangering the Next Generation? And then it begins by saying, In the 1950s, industry and development catalyzed the so-called Great Acceleration, a dramatic surge in human consumption and activity that continues to this day. Four generations have contributed to upward trends in population, wealth, movement, energy use, telecommunications and production with global impact. 
Within only the past decade, we have seen catastrophic weather events, treatment-resistant disease, and socio-political unrest. Climate change looms large in our collective consciousness, but it is only one threat, and it goes on. Anyway, to the left of this article, in fine print, it says, Paid for by Monash University. So, it's an advertisement. Paid for by Monash University. Now, that's curious. And quite some chutzpah. Construct a marketing tweet, but link to what seems to be an article in The Guardian, but actually, it's just your own advertisement. And it is these people, the universities and the mainstream media, that apparently are all about misinformation and disinformation, so we're told. Could you imagine the uproar if it was not Monash University, but instead BP? British Petroleum. And the tweet was not about how endangered the next generation was, but rather about how wealthy and healthy and safe from a hostile environment the next generation was, all because of fossil fuels. And now imagine that the tweet linked to a web address that was the New York Post, or in Australia, the Daily Telegraph, or the Spectator, giving the impression that it was a news article. But there in the fine print was the admission that it was a paid advertisement. The tweet would not only be deleted, the accounts of both BP and the offending media outlet would be indefinitely suspended. The new, although now defunct, US disinformation board would be top of the agenda once again on all the mainstream media outlets and the singing TikToker who was to head the operation offered a healthy dose of smelling salts to reinvigorate her so as to come down heavily on the kind of propaganda that endangers the ability of the citizen to navigate the mire of misinformation online that we're told we're always swimming in. But never mind all that, because nothing that Monash University is saying in their article, I mean advertisement, counts as misinformation or disinformation. In this age of information and pessimism, the late 90s and 2000s ushered in what was described as an information age, but that was to label literal information. The modern information age is correct information. It's approved information. And how is information approved as information? rather than its evil Loki-like twins, mis- and disinformation. Well, it's approved as such by authorities. We need authorities to be able to certify information as reliable, trustworthy, and accurate. How else could it possibly work? Such authorities will be, of course, in the main, university academics. That goes without saying. The most highly credentialed experts in their field, the ones who are able to predict the future by looking into their crystal balls. Sorry, I mean modelling complex systems with their supercomputers. It's not important that you understand how it's done. You should trust the experts when they say it can be done. After all, trust the experts is a heuristic you have been inculturated with at school and also by the media. And well, an expert is just a certain kind of authority anyways. An elected official, a politician, well, that's basically just someone who listens to the experts and acts on expert advice. To do otherwise, well, that would be irrational. And of course, that does raise the question as to why there is any need for these elected class of politicians at all. Anyway, surely it would be far more streamlined if we just let the experts decide without any of this friction of having a parliament. They would not have to explain and presumably dumb down their carefully crafted and technical scientific theories and predictions for a group of people who are largely only expert in things like law and political science and business in some cases, unionism more often, and community organisation and education. But for now, we seem to be stuck with this pesky democracy thing. And so the best we can do is vote in people who, before they're elected, profess their agreement with expert opinion. 
especially on the most important problems, like the science of catastrophic climate change. And it is indeed said to be a catastrophe. Whether the catastrophe is already upon us or whether it is about to begin and is right around the corner, we don't know. It depends on what the weather's doing at any one particular moment. The catastrophic climate change headline doesn't usually go into details. Although if there's just been a flood, well, that's evidence of catastrophic climate change. Of course, if the weather is good for a long period of time, well, well, of course, then we know that weather isn't climate. But the important thing is to keep repeating the mantra that it is a catastrophe, and so one is entitled to catastrophize, and catastrophize to a degree and to a level of detail that would make the dominionist religious fanatic blush with their tall tales of end times, fire and brimstone literally falling from the heavens as the day of judgment is upon us. But this is not that. Don't compare some silly, ludicrous religious myth with the science. There's a very good reason why one set of prophecies, I mean predictions, are challenged by respected media outlets, their journalists and reporters, while others are not. There's a difference between the science and silly doomsday end time scenarios. Don't be ridiculous. But haven't the experts made precise and detailed predictions over the decades and been proven false? No, you've obviously not been paying attention. You must not understand the science and how modelling works. There's room for error. The central theory is correct, and each year as our computer models become more precise, we can refine our predictions and see why we made some errors over the last few decades. Those people didn't really know what they're doing, but now we have much better technology and far more refined theories. In other words, each time one set of predictions from those who insist the world is going to be destroyed by climate change in short order, just you wait, just you wait, each time those predictions prove false, or the time comes and goes when the famine should have killed millions, or the rising sea level should have wiped out entire cities, or in the case here in Australia of our Australian experts, the drought should have seen all the major dams around Sydney run dry decades ago, and for decades, instead there's been record floods for years now, each time those predictions turn out false, there is no need whatsoever to revise anything of the underlying theory and doctrine. The theory is sound, and as such, precise predictions about disaster are scientific as well. So it is entirely right and reasonable to double down in these cases. Respectable academics and journalists who report their musings should, in these cases, argue it's even worse than we thought. So perhaps there was no drought. You need to say something like, well, I don't think that's what Dr Flannery, our respected Australian academic who talks about climate change, was really saying in context, if you, if you go back and listen to his remarks, that could be a good way of getting around this. But, you need to emphasise, the floods that we've just seen, even if the droughts never happened, the floods are a result of climate change and mean we really do need to begin taxing the big polluters more so they pay their fair share. Okay, so there was no famine. But it's coming, and it's going to be even worse than what the people in the past said it might become. No place has yet been inundated by rising sea levels, and no population displaced by the melting of the polar ice caps, but just you wait. It's going to be far worse and faster than any of us can imagine. This is Generation Endangered. And by the way, now and again, Peppier remarks with, it's probably too late to do anything, to save you, your friends and the world. But maybe... If there are some few survivors of the inevitable apocalypse to come, and you'd like to have the best chance of being among those few survivors, there are some rituals that might appease the gods, I mean authorities. 
Convert to veganism firstly, because farming causes methane, and didn't you know methane's even worse than carbon dioxide for global warming? And on carbon dioxide, vote for policies that eliminate fossil fuels. The wealthy cause more pollution and destruction than anyone else, so vote for redistribution where you can, and perhaps for governments more closely in touch with cultures that themselves have a deep understanding of land and the place of people in a natural environment. Wealth is a very suspicious thing. The pursuit of profit is absolutely a sin and powered by fossil fuel burning, carbon dioxide generating, and it's all dirty energy anyway. And what do we do with sinners, the people pursuing profits? Well, we can leave that to the authorities as well. But we know which way we're voting, just maybe, even if we cannot save ourselves, at least those who have brought the great evil and the anger of the earth upon us, maybe they'll finally get their just desserts. In such a world where people are, astonishingly, still allowed to freely choose more or less how to live in Western countries, people are still choosing the wrong thing. They're still choosing not what is right for the planet. People are still eating meat. They're still driving cars with combustion engines. People are still voting for parties that say things like, we can't get to net zero emissions by 2030. This is the world of so-called freedom. And such a world of so-called freedom is just the freedom to commit suicide and murder everyone else around you. Such a disastrous disconnect between what we know for certain about what the science is telling us will happen and what people are allowed to choose is everything that is wrong with the world. COVID taught us something. It taught us that if the crisis comes, then we can act rationally. We can stop this ridiculous idea that non-experts are in any position to decide what is best for the safety of people and the environment. For once, the officials or the authorities or the experts with actual relevant credentials and political perspectives and medical degrees, for once they were front and centre and able to keep us safe and healthy. For once, finally. And those who disagreed were put in their rightful place, kept at home, off the streets, and of course, silence as far as possible to help stop the spread of their mis- and disinformation. If there's one thing worse than the spread of a respiratory virus... It's the spread of misinformation. And in both cases, there needs to be a way to inoculate people against it. The chief health officer knows what is best. They understand more than others what it takes for individuals and communities to be healthy. It's there in their title, the chief of the health officers. They are concerned primarily with health. And if they say close the gyms and restrict shopping hours is best for your health, then that's what is best for your health. And anyone who disagrees is obviously wrong. Now, that's all very well for a pandemic, but what about when the pandemic is over? How can we ensure that people with actual knowledge and understanding of the science can still have authority? Well, what about a planetary health officer? I'm going to unpack the Guardian's article. I mean, Monash University's advertisement, <laughs> a paragraph at a time, because it's worth understanding all of this. This is a mixture not merely of science and non-science, but science and nonsense and how a worldview really does shape and how one interprets facts. And I know that what I've just said previously might be a bit hard to pass. Was I being serious or not serious? Well, hopefully my perspective becomes more clear. If you don't know me very well, you should know what my perspective is anyway. But as I begin to unpack this article, I'm going to read through it. Um, I'm going to read a few paragraphs anyway from this, this, this remarkable article slash advertisement from Monash University, and maybe you'll see what my perspective is. So the article begins, as I said, um, well, in this way. Let me just read the whole thing, oh, the first paragraph anyway. Quote, The world has changed, but is it irrevocable? 
Experts weigh in on what the future will really be like for the generations to come. In the 1950s, industry and development catalyzed the so-called Great Acceleration, a dramatic surge in human consumption and activity that continues to this day. Four generations have contributed to upward trends in population, wealth, movement, energy use, telecommunications and production with global impact, end quote. So fans of Lord of the Rings movies will know that the world is changed is exactly how the series began with Galadriel making those remarks. It is nothing but a vacuous truism. It is everything that is wrong, not with climate science or even concerns about climate change, but rather with the political ideology that is behind so much of what is said about climate science and climate change. Clearly, there is only one constant in our universe and with the climate in particular, and that is that over long timescales, it changes with or without people. It changes with people and with or without the burning of fossil fuels. The climate would change. In another branch of the multiverse, in another world in other words, where for whatever reason human beings discovered nuclear physics far sooner and all of our electricity is now generated either by fission or fusion and it has proceeded for centuries without major accident, there would still be climate change. The Earth eventually would either cool or heat up because that's what happens. And then we would still need to do something as we do now, whether that something is terraformed to heat or cool the Earth in some way so as to make it more hospitable for us may be an open question. But this is what we should want to do, to change the climate in response to natural and or man-made climate change. We change the climate in our houses and cars, so why not the planet? We neither want sea levels to rise or fall. Perhaps in some places like Greenland and Russia, it would be better if the climate changes such that it was warmer. It would be good if we could do that. Maybe the Middle East and parts of Africa and the centre of Australia could do with some cooling. It would be good if we could do that too, simultaneously. Maybe one day we will. Whatever the case, the world has changed is no great insight, but this is what a centre of higher learning is offering first up to entice us to attend. Deep stuff. Now, as for the rest of that paragraph, if you have been indoctrinated into anti-human pessimism, then you will read that sentence that labels the Great Acceleration, a period of dramatic surges in population, wealth, movement, energy, use, telecommunications and production, as nothing but a great evil. It portends disaster to you. But for an optimist, this is amazing. This is an amazing list of wonderful things. And these are some of the indicators of why things have indeed gotten better. And they have gotten better. The paragraph asks... Is it irrevocable? And that might as well be applied in retrospect to the question of our improvement. The improvements, morally, scientifically, technologically, the improvements for ourselves and the planet. The planet used to be a death trap everywhere and almost all the time for everyone. Now civilization makes it inhabitable. And in a few, still delicate admittedly, in the cosmic scheme of things, in a few places, there are signs of resilience. Structures where people and their animals are protected. All right, let's read another paragraph. The next one. Quote, Within only the past decade, we have seen catastrophic weather events, treatment-resistant disease, and socio-political unrest. Climate change looms large in our collective consciousness, but it is only one threat facing coming generations as we enter the next decade. Is there still time for us to take action? Or are our children and their children really endangered? End quote. Sounds scary. But in other words... Every decade, there are catastrophic weather events, 
treatment-resistant diseases and socio-political unrest. How has it ever been otherwise? When has it ever been otherwise? Well, actually, it is a little bit different now. All of those things cause less damage than they ever have before because of us. A reasonably mild winter in Europe in the past would wipe out large percentages of the entire population. Now, we've got heated indoors, heated with our electricity, much of it generated by fossil fuels. Treatment-resistant disease? Well, at least now we have treatments at all. Does anyone really think medicine and virology and treatments are in decline, or that there was some time in the past where there was more of a golden age than there is now? Socio-political unrest. We've just exited a century where the globe went to war with itself twice, and before that, history is a catalogue of nation against nation and tribe against tribe almost continuously. This last decade has been safer, healthier, more peaceful, and more happy than any before. Are our children really more endangered? No, less than ever before. And some reasons for that include the burning of fossil fuels, which have accelerated the construction of our built environment more cheaply, so that our capacity to travel and share ideas and products more than ever before, and the powering of a knowledge economy means that those children are all at less risk of disease than ever before. In a society where war and revolution though always a threat, have diminished to the point of being morally unacceptable to most people. Happily, and that increasing majority of people, understand history to some extent and how bad it was, because we know, unlike our ancestors did, just how bad it can get. It is not unthinkable that nuclear war could still happen, and it is not impossible that democracies could be overthrown by tyrannies. But so many more of us at least have Netflix and YouTube, honestly where we can actually see what happened during world wars and in nuclear conflict and what violent revolutions can do. We're more educated. We know more stuff than ever before. We learn, we improve. Things are getting better, but things can never be perfect or unproblematic. The article continues, quote, Professor Tony Capon is a leading authority in the emerging field of planetary health and directs the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. He says the major challenges before us are global and intersecting and will affect our physical and mental well-being, end quote. And that all sounds very nice, unless you're like me and you read it as one of the more dystopian paragraphs in the entire advertisement. A leading authority in planetary health? I guess Professor Tony Capon is a very nice guy, I don't know him. But this insistence on the word authority is always and everywhere to be regarded with Deep scepticism. I've got two reasons for this. Number one, the epistemological reason to be sceptical about the use of the word authority. When authority is used as a sort of synonym for expert, in other words, to label someone as being in possession of knowledge, allowing them the expertise or the authority to claim to know, or more precisely, to be deferred to on a particular matter, we are in a world of Plato's justified true belief. The only reason to regard someone or other as an authority when it comes to science or knowledge claims more broadly, like he's an authority on 17th century French poetry, for example, is because someone somewhere is seeking to justify that this person's claims are either true or more true or more reliable than the claims of someone else with less authority. But that entire way of thinking is completely misleading. It is misleading because none of that knowledge they have obtained over howsoever many years prevents them from making errors. 
or even of making just as many errors as anyone else, especially in places where there are significant unknowns. As Karl Popper remarked, quote, While differing widely in the various bits we know, in our infinite ignorance, we are all equal, end quote. So even experts are infinitely ignorant about infinitely many things. We all are. They do not have authority over knowledge, nor are they authorities in knowledge. It's the wrong standard. As Popper also wrote in 1960 in his piece titled Knowledge Without Authority, quote, I wish to replace the question of the sources of our knowledge by the entirely different question. How can we come to detect and eliminate error? End quote. That is what expertise is about. It is about a methodology more than any quantity of knowledge. Does one understand the methodology used in that field of expertise to allow error to be detected and eliminated? Popper wanted to remove authority from the entire conception we have of knowledge because there are no infallible sources. So there should be no knowledge authorities because we can all make mistakes. We are all error prone. We are all fallible. So that's the reason, epistemologically speaking, the places like universities in particular should very much avoid the use of this idea of an authority in some particular area. But there's another reason. Number two, the moral reason to avoid this word authority. Increasingly, there are experts who claim authority in both the sense I've already mentioned, the epistemological sense, but also in the political sense. They regard their expertise as a claim of literal authority over their fellow citizens. Never did we see more of this, more starkly, than with public health experts over the last few years. There, quite often, in many democracies, they were literal authorities, designated by the state as something in between an elected official and a law enforcement officer. They were able to regulate on a whim and although, technically speaking, could be overruled by the politician, the culture itself rapidly descended into one where the media and even the people themselves, an overwhelming majority of people, wanted the politician to grant additional powers and authorities to the health bureaucrats because they knew best because it was the science. So that was the theory. Put aside that there were many unknowns, the health authorities knew what to do, so it was argued. In a culture where individual freedom was already under threat, the very words individual and freedom became, throughout COVID, pejoratives. Pejoratives labelling people who wanted to kill grandma, or people who just did not care. Or my favourite of all of these, it was a label for lunatic libertarians. Never mind that none of these so-called lunatics ever said they intended to break down the door of vulnerable grandma. The lunatics just wanted to be able to do what they judged. In a world of unknowns, what they judged might make them, via their own immune systems, more resilient. You know, going outside into the fresh air where there was already said to be no transmission outside compared to inside. And also into the sunshine for extended periods of time which was said to be hostile to the virus and improved vitamin D production, which apparently had something to do with less likelihood of being infected by the virus. And perhaps even go to the gym where they could lift some weights, which never before had been said to be unhealthy, rather the opposite. But no, none of this was permitted, because if one group of us was to suffer the consequences of an erroneous theory, like, say, stay inside, out of the sun and on the couch with delivered food, then all of us must suffer in exactly the same way by making exactly the same decision. There can be no control group. Control groups 
are immoral. We have the authority, and we are the planetary health authorities. But I get ahead of myself. So, I think we have two reasons for universities in particular to avoid this whole concept of their academics being authorities on knowledge. They can have all the experts they want, but I don't think the word authority is right. And it conjures some very bad ideas. But anyway, Monash's, Monash University's so-called planetary health authority seems to only be on authority in the first sense. But does anyone think there are not those who pine for a global planetary health authority office staffed by planetary health officials and headed by a chief planetary health officer? Now, the first one of these I've encountered, Professor Tony Capon, as we say here from Monash University, says that these challenges to planetary health will affect not only your physical, but also your mental well-being. Now, that's fortunate because Mental well-being is so elastic a concept as to include any new deviation from what is said to be normal by mental health experts. It could very well be the case that subscribing to the wrong ideas could be a sign of poor mental health, and some remedy would need to be undertaken to fix that. Now let's go on to the next paragraph. Quote, Humans are now changing Earth's systems to such an extent that it will affect the well-being and lives of people into the future. Climate change is arguably the biggest challenge, but others include clearing of forests for agricultural production. Loss of biodiversity and habitat has been part of the rise in spillover of new pathogens from animals to people, as we've seen with SARS-CoV-2, end quote. Yes, so, so let me repeat that first sentence. The first sentence read, quote, Humans are now changing Earth's systems to such an extent that it will affect the well-being and lives of people into the future, end quote. They forgot to put something at the end there. And that's something they forgot to put was, for the better. Humans are changing Earth systems for the better, affecting well-being and lives of people into the future for the better, for the better. And ever since we first evolved, we've done this. First slowly, or next to not at all. But since the Enlightenment, we have changed Earth systems, so-called, for the better. And for the better ever faster every single year. Things will happen in the natural environment absent us. There will, or would be, catastrophes like wildfires and floods that cause loss of biodiversity. But the thing is, if you care about this biodiversity thing, then the only thing that can do anything to maintain it in some way that people want is people. Life evolves and ecosystems evolve because the environment changes. There have been mass extinctions and minor extinctions, and the overwhelming majority of them happened before people ever existed. And they're still happening, with or without people. But apparently now that we exist, and we understand something of what's going on, every single extinction, or loss of biodiversity, because it occurs with us on the planet, must be because of us on the planet. But there is no reason to think that that's true. Sure, in some cases it might be the case, but but panda bears can be helped by us to reproduce and save their own species, and yet they don't. But this anti-humanism pessimism blames us for everything that goes wrong, for literally everything that happens on the earth. Major weather event, human-caused climate change. Loss of some species, humans at the root of that somewhere. New pathogen resistant to treatments, humans using the one thing that keeps those pathogens at bay, antibiotics. So now there's an anti-antibiotic movement, by the way. Problems are soluble is not a tenant in the belief system of adherence to anti-human pessimism. Next paragraph, quote, As a medical doctor, Capon refers to these aspects as symptoms of the Anthropocene, a term some researchers use to describe this era of human-influenced impact. 
They are signs that our ways of living are out of balance with natural systems, end quote. So now we are medicalizing the globe. The patient is the planet, and we are going to need GPs, general planetists, as well as specialists to ensure we are living in balance. What is this about being out of balance? Is this medicine? This sounds very woo-woo. It sounds like alternative health more than actual medicine. Maybe we'll have planetary medical science and also alternative planetary medicine. <laughs> An entire industry of homeopathic remedies that national governments can sign up for to recalibrate waterways that might be in disequilibrium. Or perhaps the continental chakras might need realignment. Next paragraph. Quote, for decades, human activity, including unprecedented development, has contributed to compounding and interrelated consequences. Escalating energy use, carbon emissions, water use, deforestation, and ocean acidification don't only create climate change, they also have an impact on world populations, public health, the availability of food, hygiene, employment conditions, education, poverty, and gender inequality, end quote. Just a matter on science in their own terms. I mean, they've said there, among other things, that ocean acidification don't only create climate change, blah, blah, blah. I thought that was the other way around. I thought climate change caused the ocean acidification. Isn't that the way things go? You know, you increase the pollution and it increases carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The rain comes down. It's got an increased amount of carbon dioxide in it. So it becomes carbonic acid. And so I think they've got the, the cart before the horse there. It's, they're saying ocean acidification causes climate change, but I think it's the other way around, even in their own terms. So they can't even get that right, apparently. And this is Monash University pushing their own particular doctrine here. Anyway, all of those things there that they listed, availability of food, hygiene, employment conditions, etc., have been improved. And all of them, by the way, by escalating energy use and carbon emissions. Speaking of being in or out of balance... There is never any attempt to balance the scales here. This water use that they've just complained about, energy use and carbon emissions, is there any upside? Do we ever hear about any upsides? Does the calculation include any positive impact of these things? It's as if humans are just out there willfully burning seams of coal and burning forests down, letting all of the runoff go straight into the ocean and for no good reason. I notice world population gets a mention there, but it's just that those things that were listed have an impact on world populations. But is it up or down? And is going up or going down the bad thing? Uh, they're having a bet both ways. It depends on which part of the agenda you're pushing, I suppose. If you want to emphasise the present destruction humans are engaging in when it comes to other species, well, just say the planet is overpopulated with human beings. But if you want to scare the kiddies into subscribing to your ideology, get them when they're young, say they're endangered or that populations of people overseas are being threatened. As for the availability of food and hygiene and all those things, well, I don't know what they're getting at here. They've been improved without hardly any backward steps for centuries. Yet here is the implication, and the reading the pessimist takes away is, all those things are getting worse. As if sometime in the past it was better, there was better availability of public health and food and hygiene, employment conditions, education, poverty and gender equality. What are they talking about? Never have any of those things been as good as they are now. It could be better still. Only if we did the one thing that gave us accelerating improvements in all of those things, namely accelerating progress, fueled by cheap energy and wealth creation. Another paragraph. Quote, If we don't rethink and make changes, we will see more devastating bushfires, Capon says. We will see hotter, longer and more frequent heatwave events and other extreme weather events like floods. 
We'll see more pandemics. Chemical pollutants will increase in global food supply chains, end quote. This has been said for decades. These are the prophecies they have always made and have always turned out refuted eventually, especially when they put a precise date on things. It has no effect when they make these prophecies and they turn out false. No effect except for a doubling down. Now, in the Substack article, if you go to that, I've linked to another article which lists 50 years worth of climate change predictions published in newspapers over the last 50 years that have turned out completely and utterly false. It's titled, Wrong Again, 50 Years of Failed Eco-Apocalyptic Predictions. Always precise with the dates and always just around the corner. Now, perhaps modern doomsayers are wising up. They're not putting such precise dates on their prophetic musings anymore. So that way, they can get away with finger-wagging without the possibility of ever being falsified. But they can still purport to do science, can't they? And they will. And of course we're going to see more pandemics, as that paragraph warned. Unless we can find a solution to eliminating dangerous viruses and bacteria, it is another vacuous assertion about what happens with humans and viruses. It is catastrophizing. Next paragraph. Quote, It's a grim picture. But Capon stresses that this shouldn't mean that we stop all development. In fact, he says, development is fundamental to the well-being of future generations. We should be striving for sustainable development that is in harmony with natural systems and doesn't impair future opportunities. We can do a better kind of development, end quote. <laughs> well, we can't stop all development. <laughs> How generous of him. We can't stop it all. Sustainable development, though, that's what we need. Here we just need to invoke that marvellous observation from David Deutsch in his chapter From the Beginning of Infinity, which is titled Unsustainable. When someone passionate about environmental activism invokes the term sustainable, it has this curiously ambiguous meaning. On the one hand, it can mean to provide something with what it needs. So in the case of humans, to provide people with what they need, what, to, what is required to sustain them, to keep them alive. But what we need as humans, as a civilization, is for things to change and change rapidly. Because the environment is changing rapidly and we are changing rapidly as we learn more, as we create more knowledge. And the universe itself is in a constant state of flux anyway. The fundamental truth of reality is things change. And that means if we want to adapt to the change, if we want to sustain ourselves, we need to change rapidly. So sustainable development must mean for us rapid progress. The only development that is sustainable in the long run is cheap, efficient, and rapid. And I would also say free and open-ended and multi-pronged so we can test many different ideas and approaches simultaneously rather than having one approach centralised for any given issue. But sustain also means keep things the same. And so sustainable development, what they mean what the people who push these ideas mean by that is actually slow and barely changing, not changing much, so that we don't damage or impact other things. But that is a disastrous plan. That is a plan for catastrophe. Because there is an impact coming from a place we do not know. The problem not looked for or found in time, unseen until on a quiet Tuesday afternoon, bam! Another tsunami, or bam, an asteroid, or virus, or earthquake, or nuclear disaster, or terrorist event, or, more frightening still, a thing no one thought could be an existential threat. It will make all these other things pale into insignificance. And the only way, the only way, 
we can be resilient in the face of such a thing as to have rapid progress, rapid development. Not wishy-washy, hand-wringing, precautionary principles, slowed-down progress that is parochially concerned either about one's local or global environment. We need a cosmic perspective on these things because our home is the universe and we need to be ready for it. And we can be if we build wealth and progress much faster. All right, I'm skipping sections of the article now, and I'll just pick it up where it says, quote, the climate crisis will have impacts on health risks and access to healthcare, further promoting inequality across population groups. In addition, in high-income countries in particular, the relatively rich lifestyles led by current and past generations will compound health concerns for future generations at a cellular level. And here's a quote from an academic at, Mo at Monash University, quote, we've had access to high-calorie, dense food, too much of it, setting up the potential for transgenerational disease. High-fat, high-sugar diets are becoming more prevalent around the world, and these not only cause chronic diseases such as diabetes and obesity, but by influencing our reproductive germ cells and fetal growth in utero can contribute to metabolic disease in offspring, also linked to our modern lifestyle. Health risks arising from autoimmunity and inflammation are more prevalent in the population than ever before, end quote. Well, yes, um, this is the, the same idea that, that cancer seems to go up. You know what? If you live longer, eventually something eventually goes wrong. This doesn't need to be the case. But there is the reason why certain diseases become more prevalent. People live longer. Yeah, if we reduced the lifespan of people back to what it was centuries or millennia ago, you probably wouldn't be finding diabetes and obesity. People would die before people ever became fat or diabetic. <sighs> No solution creates an unproblematic state. These are better problems than people dying at a much younger age. As for the inequality stuff they're talking about there, well, it is necessary, it is necessary in a free society that there is inequality across population groups when it comes to healthcare and everything else. Here is why. A new treatment or medical procedure has to be invented. It has to be created. Someone has to come up with that idea and they need to be paid to do it. This invention, the creation, it costs money because scientists need to conduct research to discover that it works and how it works and so on and so forth and how to actually manufacture the thing. In order to pay for all of that and those scientists, the first people to get the treatment are going to pay a premium. They're going to pay a higher price and that higher price goes into funding more research and causing the treatment to scale so that for everyone else, it's much cheaper. It might take a couple of years, but hey, that works pretty well. And it has worked for the last few centuries. It's the same way that new mobile phones are the most expensive. Should this be unexpected? Rich people buy them. Rich people buy the best technology when it first comes out. And this goes into funding the next round of improvements, making that mobile phone ever cheaper. The only alternative to this that we know about is to take away the freedom and the incentive to create and the freedom to be motivated to some extent by profit as well and to give everyone exactly the same thing, which is what North Korea does. So one kind of government-made mobile phone, one kind of government treatment, uniform for everyone, with exceedingly slow progress and only at a rate the government authorities deem is safe or valid. Also... Why these planetary health officials are interested in our diet, I don't know, but isn't that wonderful? They'll be able to tell us what to eat and drink. The implication here is that perhaps planetary health authorities might be up to rubber stamping what's safe to eat and no longer safe to eat. Who wouldn't want to go to Monash University and be trained in planetary health sciences? 
You could be an authority on climate, medicine, nutrition, all the good stuff, just about every aspect of a person's life. You can be a guardian, not only of people alive today, but have intergenerational impact. (sighs) Next paragraph. Quote, With issues as complex as these, potential solutions must bring together experts from many fields. In a world divided into silos of expertise, Carol says, Monash University's strategic plan is to bring the expert minds together and solve these complex issues by going to the source of the problem to tackle it from a holistic, multidimensional perspective. End quote. Holistic and multidimensional. Holistic I've heard in alternative health uh, arenas before. Multidimensional is starting to sound a little bit um, multiversal there, but... Anyway, in the same way that if you've fallen off your bike and broken your leg, it's not necessarily the case you need an orthopaedic surgeon, hey, to repair your broken femur. No, you want the holistic medical team taking time to fully assess everything from a multidimensional perspective. To prevent future falls off your bike, we just need to check your eyes and ears and perhaps prescribe a less high-calorie diet rich in soft drinks because I think you've been unbalanced because of carrying that additional weight from your chronic obesity. (sighs) Moving on. Quote, There will also be many future voices with important contributions to make. When young people in the generation that will come after them stare down an uncertain future, they do so with insight and fearlessness. Get out of their way, says this academic. Give them more power to talk about their futures, discuss the big issues and have input into policy formation. The faster and more cohesively we act, he says, the greater chance we give our children and our children's children to thrive in a changing world. Capon takes an optimistic message from COVID-19. The pandemic has shown us that we can act urgently, he says. We can come together and act together as a society with a purpose. Now it's time we take that further. End quote. Well, yes, get out of the way of young people. Get out of the way at least if they agree with all of that, with all of that doctrine. Woe betide the actual optimistic young person who wants to go against the grain here and argue for an actually optimistic future where we do not need to control our fellows for fears they're vectors of disease or sources of pollutants contributing to the catastrophic global climate change. How far out of the way will an academic get to make space for a place on the podiums of the universities for the young person who will say that we need more people and need to encourage young profit-driven creative entrepreneurs who want to work for a deregulated society where we can take risks experimenting with scientific and medical technology without government interference to produce more widgets more cheaply. What about the genuine optimist who takes from the pandemic not the message that we can come together and act as a society with purpose and that we could take this further, but rather that we can foster individuality and respect and honour those who disagree with the mainstream and who see another way of improving society and the planet, not through sustainable development, but rather by recognising that nothing is sustainable except for rapid progress. And if the progress we have is too slow, slowed down by concerns about sustainability and the environment, then we will be overtaken, ultimately, by the very environment we are seeking to preserve in some sort of present idyllic form. We 
are the most valuable entities known in the universe. The environment is little more than our resource for us to construct the world around us. If we lose sight of this and instead come to all believe and all think of us, ourselves, human beings as the danger and the environment in need of protection from us rather than the other way around, then really everything will be lost. For now that doctrine of protect the environment for we humans are dangerous Well, it's just the most prominent academic dogma, and it's got a foothold in the institutions, and it's got a foothold in the media, but it has not yet caused dramatic change in the way industry, business, and the average person on the face of the planet behaves, but it's having some effect. For now, at least implicitly, people do realise it's the environment that's the danger, and we need protection from it. We need protection from natural disasters, viruses, and bad ideas that motivate the bad behaviour of others. And goodness knows what else is just around the corner that's going to be a danger to us. Our impulse to survive and improve still directs our behaviour and still it overcomes this pessimistic anti-humanism that would seek to diminish and reverse progress. But it will not necessarily remain this way. The universities might be lost to a large extent on this point. They might be centres of furthering the indoctrination of the young to continue this cycle of despair and dismay. But with any hope, there can be some new way forward here outside the mainstream education system where perhaps young people can learn optimism and work on actual fundamental progress, hopefully, happily, generating wealth and generating more knowledge.